chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, and it reads, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Back in uh, 1881, uh, one of our local boys, Sam Clemens, Mark Twain, uh, published a, a, a little novel called The Prince and the Pauper. Has anybody ever read that? Prince and the Pauper. It is a great little story about mistaken identity. It's about uh, these two boys. They're born at about the same time. Uh, one boy, Prince Edward, is born into wealth, opulence, um, he's born in the castle. He's born to uh, King Henry VIII, and he's born into royalty. Uh, and there's another boy born in London, in the poorest part of London, an area called Awful Court, right off of Pudding Lane. And this is Tom Canty. And Tom Canty is born to an alcoholic, abusive father who uh, beats him and makes him steal and makes him beg. And when he doesn't bring home any money, he gets severely beaten. Uh, and he just lives in this squalor and the, in, the, in the worst parts of London. One day, Tom, the little, the little boy that lives in, in poverty, he decides he's going to wander out and try to get away from the slums of London. He wanders out, and he gets out to Westminster where the palace is, and he's looking through the fence that separates you know, the streets of London from the opulence and the, and, the, and the wealth and the power of the palace. And he looks in and he sees little Prince Edward. He sees Edward and he, Edward is playing there in the yard and these are little boys. And, and, you know, Tom Canty looks and he just wishes so badly that he could be in there and that he, that could be his life. Um, you know, he's dressed in rags. He's in threadbare clothes and he's dirty. And uh, one of the guards sees him. And comes over and grabs him and pulls him away from the fence and says, you know, you get away from there. Well, the prince is in the yard and he sees this. He sees this interaction between the guard and between and, and Tom Canty. And he comes over to the guard and he says, hey, you let that guy alone. You know, he rebukes the guard. And he said, you leave him alone. 
he can come in and he can play with me. So Prince Edward invites this poor beggar boy into his, uh, into his palace. And so Tom and Edward are now in the palace. And, you know, of course, Tom is just blown away by the, by the beauty of this place and by the comfort. And uh, he's never seen anything like this. And Prince Edward and, and Prince Edward has never really been out of the palace gates. He doesn't know what it's like to, to you know, mix and mingle with a commoner. Uh, so they, they start to talk. And uh, when Tom Canty is admiring the clothes, the finery that Prince Edward wears, Prince Edward says, oh, well, why don't you put, it, put them on? So he puts these, you know, these really wealthy clothes and these really expensive clothing onto Tom. And as a jest, Prince Edward says, let me put on your clothes. So he puts on Tom Canty's clothes, the, the threadbare rags. And, uh, and they look at each other, and they notice that they look remarkably alike, like almost no one could actually tell them apart. And, th- and as they're noticing this, Prince Edward notices that Tom's got a bruise on his hand. And he said, where'd you get that bruise? And I think Tom tells him that he, that he got it from, from the guard when the guard roughed him up. And uh, Prince Edward is upset by this, and he says, well, I'm going to go tell that guard, you know, what for? So he goes out to the gate, but now he's dressed in the threadbare clothes. He goes out to the gate to tell the guard, you know, hey, you leave my friend alone. Well, the guard sees him, and the guard thinks that this is the little pauper. And the guard grabs him and throws him out of the gate, throws him out into the streets. So now the prince is dressed in clothes and is out in the, in the streets of London. And the pauper is in the palace. Do you remember this story? I mean, it's a great story. So the pauper is in the palace. And the, and the prince is out in the street. The, uh, the prince immediately demands to be let back in. The, I'm, the, I'm Prince Edward, Prince of Wales. King Henry is my father. And the crowd that's around the palace gate just start mocking him and jeering at him. He ta- and, and then a, some of the rougher elements start to push him around and shove him around and beat up on him a little bit. And then, then he, he, when he insists that this is who he is, when he insists that he's royalty, that some people sick their dogs on him. And they ch- anyway, they end up chasing him all the way back to London. So now, he's, now the prince is wandering the streets of London dressed as a beggar. And he's wandering around, and Tom Canty's dad, the mean, abusive, alcoholic father, says, there you are. I've been looking for you. And he grabs him and he says, where, why haven't you, uh, why, why haven't you brought me any money? And he beats him. And anyway, the prince just is forced into this life where he is trying to insist to everyone that he's, the, he's the king's son. And everyone that sees him says, no, you're not. We know who you are. Who do you think you are putting on airs and pompous airs and these delusions of grandeur? We know who you are. You're John Canty's son. You're a beggar. You're no one. So, should I tell you how it ends? Yeah. Well, at the end, of course, uh, King Henry dies. And, and uh, Tom, after many, many adventures, misadventures, makes it back to Westminster. And right when they're about to, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury is about to, to put the crown on Tom Canty's head, you know, little Edward steps up and he goes, hold on, I'm the prince. And Tom says, you know, Tom agrees, says, yeah, this is really the prince. I'm not the prince. And, um, and then, of course, Prince Edward becomes the king. And Tom Canty and his mom get to live in the, in the royal palace. It's a great, great story of a mixed-up identity of a person who is trying to, trying to define who he is to the people around him, and no one believes him. This story, this passage that we learn 
uh, that we read from today is amazing in that it is also a story of, uh, of mistaken identity. Jesus has been out for, you know, a- as we've gone through the book of Mark, he's been out in Capernaum. Uh, if you look here on this map, Capernaum is right there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Can you see that? Um, that's, that is the area where Jesus was performing most of his miracles. That was sort of the hub at the beginning of his ministry. That's where he preached. And, then, uh, and that's where he healed people and he performed exorcisms. He did all of this stuff. Then if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, he and his disciples got on the Sea of Galilee and they went down to the southeast corner. And you see that area that's called Decapolis, Gadara. That's where he uh, met the demon-possessed man and he cast out the demons and he worked with the Gentiles and he... Um, you know, he was part of that whole whole arena. And then he came back to Capernaum. And if you remember last week, we talked about how he healed the woman with the issue of blood. And then ultimately he topped off these ministry, or these miracles by raising that little girl, Jairus's daughter, from the dead. Um, last week we talked about how he did that. He just took her hand and he said, little girl, it's time to wake up. And she, she rose from the dead. So he's been out doing his ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, forgiving people. Uh, you know, casting out demons, defending himself against the thre- the uh, allegations of blasphemy. Uh, you know, he's he's had a plot, a death plot against him um, by the Herodians and the Pharisees. So he's been he's been fasting for days. You recall there have been periods where he's sleeping outside and not eating for weeks. And after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of this, he says, "You know what? I'm going back to Nazareth. Nazareth is right. I don't know if you can see it there, but it's about halfway down the map." a couple days journey from Capernaum by by foot so no doubt I you know he's going back to Nazareth no doubt they're going to have a huge parade for him they're going to have a feast they're going to say our prophet our hometown hero has returned praise God right not quite uh have you ever have you ever expected a different welcome than you got have you ever gone somewhere and just you thought you were going to get one kind of welcome and you got a different kind um, I, my, <laughs> I always tell so- stories on Jameson, you know, and when he gets old enough to, to know, I'll stop and I'll start telling stories on Lincoln. But Jameson for, for many, you know, for many, many months, I mean, he's not been alive that long. He's only three, but, uh, he, he, for, there were a several month period where he loved to see mom, loved to see mom, not so excited about seeing dad. And, uh, you know, I would come in <laughs> And he would just have this look of, like, utter disappointment, like, oh, dad's home. I remember there was one time in particular we were in California at his grandparents' house, at Rebecca's folks' house. And he was, I could hear him coming down the steps, and I was already downstairs. And nobody else in the house was awake, and I thought, this is going to be awesome. Because now me and Jameson will just get to spend some time together and hang out, and we'll talk and tell stories and whatever. And he comes down the stairs, and I was sitting in the living room. He comes down the stairs. He sees me, and he literally went like this. And he, like, laid face down on the stairs. Just like, this is terrible. I'm so miserable. Anyone but him. Um, It happens. He he likes me now, but he didn't used to. Um, When Jesus comes home, there's no crowd pressing in on him. There's no ticker tape parade. There's no feast. There's no celebration. Uh, The... The people that are there are very hostile. They're hostile 
to Jesus, the scripture says they're offended. You know, rather than saying, here comes our prophet, they're saying, who in the Hades do you think you are? You can get away with that if you do it in Greek. Uh, who do you think you are, Jesus? Um, the word is scandalon. They were scandalized by his, um, by his assertions of who he was. The, as as uh, Claude just read in the scripture, they're in one respect amazed by these stories of his uh, mighty works and his wisdom and the insight of his teachings. And at the other end of the spectrum, they're scandalized and offended by this portrayal of himself. Uh, the New Testament scholar John Paul, uh, John Paul Myers says, what is beyond dispute is that in a ministry of two or three years, Jesus attracted and infuriated his contemporaries, mesmerized and alienated the ancient world, unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and thus changed the course of history forever. The first thing they say to him, they say, wait a minute, you're the carpenter's son, right? You're, you're, you're the carpenter. You're not a prophet. You're not the son of God. You are a pro- we know what you are. You are a, you're a day laborer. You're a construction worker, man. You are not anything beyond that. Don't get above yourself. Don't think that you're someone that you're not. Have you ever had someone try to define you by your trade or your profession or your job? That's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to box him in and say, look, this is who you are. You are a this. You are what you do. You work with your hands. That's what you are. And then if that wasn't enough, they take a dig at his mom. They go, wait a minute. Isn't this Mary's son? And the implication of that, remember, this is Nazareth. There are only a few hundred people, possibly a thousand, that lived in Nazareth at that time. They knew the story about Mary. They knew the curious details about Jesus' birth. They remember. If, you're, if you ever grew up, in a, if you ever lived in a small town, people know your business and they don't forget. In Nazareth, the villagers remembered. They said, well, remember when Mary got pregnant with Jesus? Remember? She wasn't married to Joseph yet, okay? Remember Mary went away to Elizabeth's house, house and she came back and she was pregnant? Remember, and there was all that discussion about, hmm, whose child is this? Remember that? They're saying that when they say, isn't this Mary's son? This is a very sort of subtle jab at Jesus' identity, his birth. Hold on a second. You're Mary's son. We know about Mary's reputation, so they take, a, they take a jab at his, at his lineage. They say, wait a second. We know who your brothers are. We know who your sisters are. We know who you are. And here you come and try to portray yourself as the son of God. But, God, uh, but Jesus will not, be a, he will not be stopped from doing his ministry just because no one would accept him at that time. And that's when he says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. You know, these people would, could not and would not accept him. Uh, Jesus, however, was able to go ahead and heal a few people. It said he wasn't be able to do any mighty works, but he was able to go ahead and heal a few people. And then he decided, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commission my disciples, and I'm going to send them out. So he tells his disciples, and he does the thing that he does throughout the scriptures, which is some of the, some of the commands that he gives, some of what he requires is sort of counterintuitive. He says to his disciples, look, I want you guys to go out among strangers and I want you to preach about me and preach the gospel. But I don't want you to take any money. 
I don't want you to take any extra clothes. I don't want you to take any food. I don't want you to take a bag. I don't want you to take, I don't want you to take an extra shirt. If you have a staff, you can keep that. But I want you to go out two by two and, uh, and spread the word about me. He does this sort of strange counter, and we'll talk about why in just a minute, but he does this sort of strange counterintuitive requirement that they not take anything with them. Uh, and then the scripture says that they went out. Uh, he, he says, if they don't accept you, if, if you go and you preach and they don't accept you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Um, and so the disciples went out, and this was the beginning of the, you know, the spreading of the word from the apostles uh, about Jesus' ministry. So there are a few things that, um, a, a few themes that we can draw, I think, from this passage. Um, and I just want to go through them with you. One is, know who you are. Uh, two is, trust God's provision. And three is, don't look back. Um, number one, know who you are. This, this is a, an urban legend, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So there's a story about Christian Slater. You know the actor Christian Slater? He was at the airport, and he was trying to get on a plane, and it was, you know, the, 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 the plane was, uh, was running late, and there were a lot of people, and it was a big crowd, and he really needed to get on there. So he goes up to the front, and he says, listen, I need to get on this plane. And, the, and the, you know, the woman behind the counter says, I'm sorry, sir, but you just have to wait. There are a lot of people waiting. And Christian Slater says, do you know who I am? And the woman, without missing a beat, takes the microphone, the public address microphone, and she says, uh, may I have your attention, please? We have a passenger here at the gate who doesn't know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please step up to the gate. I know that's not true, but it's still kind of funny to imagine it. Um, have you ever been doing something? you ever been doing something in life, and you go, you know what? This isn't me. This just isn't me. Whether it's a job whether it's something that you shouldn't be doing, uh, whether it's just whatever it is. Have you ever just had that experience where you go, this isn't me? This isn't me. Uh, my grandfather tells this story, used to tell the story um, about he, he worked in, in, he was in uh, Twin Falls, Idaho, and as a young man, he worked on cattle ranches. Uh, so he would go out and they would drive cattle, and that was his job. He was a he was a genuine cowpoke. He was the guy that, you know, they were, they were still driving cattle. And, uh, he tells a story about it. he was 18 or 19 and he was out on the range and they were driving cattle and he just felt this sense in his heart that this was not his life. He just said he had this sort of inclination in his heart and he said, this is not your life. And uh, he, that's when he felt called to ministry and he went uh, back and started studying for the ministry and got licensed and then he, he was a, um, a pastor and a, and a preacher and an evangelist and everything for like 70 years. He died at the, at around the age of 90. Um, but for 70 years, he pursued a life in ministry. But it was sort of this internal sense when he was a young man that what the direction that his life was going wasn't, wasn't the, re- the direction for him. So we are asked in this passage, I think a, a, a strong theme that comes out in this passage is to know who you are. When Jesus was faced with scorn, disbelief, hostility, the jeers of his childhood friends, even his own brothers and sisters at that time did not believe who he said he was. They were not believers. This is an interesting fact that his, his brothers and sisters became believers after the crucifixion. And it was only after the crucifixion and, and they reported that they 
that he revealed himself to them, that they saw him in, a, after the crucifixion, that he resurrected from the dead, and they saw him, and that's when his siblings became believers. But, you know, at the time, everyone in his hometown, his friends, his family, everyone, not his mother, but his, his siblings, rejected him. Jesus was a man. You know, we, we know that he was the Son of God. We believe that he was the Son of God, but he, he was also a man. He was a man that had doubts. He was a man that had, was tempted by all of the same temptations that we have. He had temptations of fear, doubt, uh, self-doubt, and he had to struggle with this in his life. He was, a, a, you know, a young man, but ultimately he knew who he was. This passage is saying to us, you, you have been made for a specific purpose in life. God has made you for a specific purpose. You are not an accident. This is, this, is, this is on the issue of who are you and know who you are. Whether you know it or not, you are a part of the divine plan of God, of God's redemption and restoration of the world. That's who you are. Uh, the family into which you were born, your appearance, your personality, your attributes, your skills, these are all part of God's divine plan. When you let others define you, you will let them confine you. Like the people that Jesus met there uh, back in Nazareth, they wanted to confine him. They wanted to squeeze his identity down to his heritage, to his lineage, to his job. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. You're not defined by the circumstances of your birth. You're not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by your past relationships, not by your struggles or your fears or your sins. While all of these things may form a part of your identity, like any work of art, you are defined by the artist that made you. Amen? This, I'm going to give you a, a, some scriptures here. This is how the artist of the universe defines you. You are, Colossians 2.10, you are complete in God. Ephesians 2.5, you are alive with Christ. Romans 8.2, you are free from the law of sin and death. 1 John 5.18, you are born of God. Ephesians 2.10, you're God's workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. You're a new creature in Christ. You are an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. You are a partaker of God's divine nature. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people. You are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are forgiven by Christ's sacrifice. You are called of God to be the voice of his praise. You are greatly loved by God, Romans 1, 7. That's who you are. When you are trying to figure out who you are, when you are faced with self-doubt, when you are faced with you know, concern about who you are and what you are, let the scripture define you. Let the scripture define who you are to God because ultimately your identity rests in him. Who you are according to God is who you are, not according to your friends, not according to your family, not according to any of the, uh, you know, of the, of, of the society or the world's attribution about you. You are who God says you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a beloved child of the living God. You're surrounded even now by the omnipresent power of his loving spirit. So when you hear that question, that same question that Jesus heard ringing in his ears, the question of who do you think you are? This is who you are. Let God define you. Number two, 
trust God's provision. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, you know, Jesus sent these guys out with nothing. And he did that for a reason. How many of you ever worry about the future? How many of you ever find that you're lying awake at night worrying about it? You're never lying awake at night going, man, this tomorrow is going to be such a good day. I mean, I'm not worried about anything. You know, when you're not worried about anything, you sleep really well. But when you're worried, you're tossing and you're turning. Uh, Albert Einstein says, I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. Um, I... I've had this, you know, this sort of sense of worry before. Um, in fact, the launch team will tell you I had a, this is the funny thing about worry. It actually does the opposite of what you want it to do. It backfires. I, uh, when we were getting ready to launch the church, um, I was so sort of fixated on how are we going to move the stuff in and get it set up? Like, like how is that going to work? You know, and, and Todd is our, is our uh, roughneck crew leader. He's the guy that's sort of in charge of getting the crew together to, to, to help load everything in. And if you want to volunteer for that team, come on, let us know. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I would literally lie awake at night thinking about how we're going to get the stuff in the trailer, down to the Tivoli, out of the trailer, into the Tivoli, set it up and everything before church start. And you know, poor Todd was getting text messages at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And, and I'm over there just, Re- Rebecca's like, you know, rolling her eyes. She's like, this is crazy. So one night I'm going, okay, now let me think about this. Now, what would happen if nobody showed up? Like what would happen if nobody showed up to put the trailer together and push things out? Could I do it on my own? So it's like midnight or one o'clock. I literally get up out of bed, go downstairs get a hold of the trailer and I'm pulling the trailer towards the van to see if I personally can get the trailer <laughs> connected to the van. And so I'm pulling it and I'm pulling it and I'm thinking, okay, this might work and I'm going to see if I can pull it over the hump. And the, the, we got this like drainage thing in our backyard and our, in our driveway. And so the front wheel of the trailer goes into the drainage thing, kink and breaks off. The, this is like this is the Saturday night before the launch, the launch of the, the first Sunday of the church. The thing breaks off and 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 remember, and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. So when the guys come now, it takes like three guys, you know, we got it fixed. But but that day it took like three guys because they all had to like pick up the front of the trailer and drag it to the thing. And then they got it. So worry does not help you, man. If you're worrying, chill out, go back to bed and stop worrying. You know, the, the other thing I did that night was I thought, you know, what if people don't know how to connect the, uh, these projectors to the computers? What if, you know, what if nobody, what, you know, because we got them in the Sunday school rooms. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to connect them all, all right? Well, I connected them all to the wrong portal because I don't know how to connect stuff like that. So we got here to church the first Sunday, and there's a crowd of people out in the lobby and none of these things work. Like this one doesn't work. The two in the sunny. People are going, what's the matter? And those other working. And uh, was Matt? Who was? Oh, it was, it was, was it Andy? Was it you, Andy? Andy goes, you mind if I take a look at this? And I'm like, yeah, okay. So Andy plugs it, pulls it out of the wrong one and plugs it in the right one. And, of course, they all work. It's like, dude, why don't you stop worrying and just do your thing and let us do our thing, okay? 
So I learned an important lesson about not worrying. Uh, the novelist, the mystery novelist, Arthur Summers Roche says, worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. When you just give, when you're worried about the future and you, you, you entertain that worry, that little trickle of fear just cuts deeper and deeper and then suddenly all your thoughts are dumping into this river and the next thing you know, you know, I, I, uh, just one more quick little anecdote. We, I bought a house in Arizona back in 2005 at the top of the bubble, the, the housing bubble in, in Phoenix, Arizona, okay, where, where the housing bubble, there's some, you guys are laughing, but the housing bubble was huge. Within like six months of me buying the house, the bubble went, and my house was worth about 40% of what it was when I bought it. And talk about worrying. I mean, I tossed and turned and fretted and sweated and was, I mean, I had it all work. In my mind, it was like foreclosure, then bankruptcy, then lose my job, then I'm going to get arrested, then I'm going to be in debtor's prison, then I'm going to just have breadcrumbs and water, and then I'm going to die an old man by myself in solitary confinement, you know. And, you know, I... <laughs> I remember I was sort of like going down that path and, and Rebecca was like, um, hey, why don't you just like do some research and just figure out, you know, what you can do instead of like staying up all night and worrying about this. And, you know, it ended up everything worked out just fine. OK, but the worry, if the worry had, ha you know, 90, 90 percent of the things we worry about don't happen and we're never worried about the present. I'm not worried that something terrible is going to happen right now. Because nothing bad is going to happen right now. But we worry about the future. Uh, Jesus wants to tackle that head on. And he tells his disciples, not only am I, I going to send you out into the unknown, but I'm going to require that you rely and trust completely and wholly on my provision. You're not allowed to take an extra shirt. He wants to create this environment, this atmosphere where this trust and this reliance and this complete trust is put on him. Our temptation is to not trust God. Our temptation is to try to work out everything in advance. And we should plan and we should be wise. But what he's trying to teach his disciples and what he's trying to teach us is at the end of the day, trust me, put all of your trust on me because I will look out and I will care for you. Matthew 6, 25, 34, I love this passage. It says, Jesus was speaking. He said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds, he says. They, are neither, uh, they neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns, and, let, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious, I love this part, which of you by your worry can add a single inch to your height or a single moment to your lifespan? And what about clothing, he says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. God is saying, look, 
There are, there are issues in life that, you, you know, that, that we're all going to deal with. Food, clothing, shelter, job, relationships, all that. But ultimately, what's really important is trusting God and developing a, re- a loving relationship with a God that loves and adores you. If a man, if a son asks for a fish, what father is going to give him a stone? Jesus says. And if you being, you fathers, he says, you being, I think he says evil, you being evil, you know, you, if you guys are going to give, are you going to take care of your, your kids? Think about what the heavenly father is going to do for you. Um, Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you put your trust in God, when you put your complete trust in God and you get your priorities aligned with what's truly valuable, then everything will take care of itself. Tomorrow, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So Jesus is saying, you know, I want you to go out two by two. I don't want you to take anything. I want you to trust completely on me. And number three, the thing he tells his disciples, and I love this, is don't look back. Don't look back. Shake the dust. Um, we've all, we all know Babe Ruth, the great baseball player. Uh, we all know that he was one of the greatest home run hitters of all time. But he was also one of the league's top strikeout kings. He struck out. His strikeout percentage uh, for, for, for his batting outs was 24%. The average at that time was 12%. So 24% of his outs were from strikeouts. Um, in 19, uh, let's see, it, 20, 29 years, Babe Ruth held the, the record for career strikeouts. He had 1,330. That record remained unbroken for 29 years until it was broken by Mickey Mantle. Babe Ruth and, Mick, and Mickey Mantle's willingness to take a swing, strike, that was part of their strategy. That was part of their home run strategy is take a swing. If you miss, you take another swing. You don't sit around and worry about the last swing that you missed. Wayne Gretzky is famous for saying you, 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 uh, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You know, if you have been in a situation in life where something has happened in your past, you've messed up, you screwed up, a bad relationship, a sin, something is, you know, in your past that you have done, by dwelling on that, by looking at that, by chewing on that, you don't allow yourself to move forward. And Jesus is saying, when you leave a place, when there's rejection, when it, when it doesn't work out, when you're not successful, when something bad happens, shake the dust off your clothes and keep going. Don't look back. There's a great sort of uh, image of this when Lot's wife, uh, was, they were commanded to leave their city, and, and, and the angels of the Lord said to them, don't look back. Don't look back. Once you leave, don't look back. And Lot, Lot's wife and Lot are leaving, and she looks back. She wants to see where she came from one last time, and the Scripture says she turned into a pillar of salt. What's the amazing sort of parallel is that when we are dwelling on our past, when we're looking back, when we're obsessed with our failures, when we're obsessed with you know, things in our, in our past, we are paralyzed by those things, and we are incapable of moving forward in life. And Jesus is saying, don't look back. What's that mean, shake the dust? Um, the ancient Israelites believed that the dust of foreign lands was unclean. And so when they, in fact, they would, there are 
um, some of the rabbinic teachings will say that even if an herb, even if a vegetable has some dust that's from foreign soil, you can't eat it because it's unclean. And so when they would come back into Israel, they would shake the dust off their clothes so that they would have, they would not, they would not bring uncleanliness into, into Israel. And now Jesus is saying this to do this very same thing. He's saying, when you leave a place, you leave a village and they've rejected you, just shake the dust off your clothes and move forward. Um, regrets are one of the things that that hold us back um, and the and the Bible is is stocked full of scriptures that try to remind us of this I'll just give you a couple here Philippians 3 13 14 brothers this is Paul speaking I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 48:19 says, "Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing; now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, and I will make rivers in the desert. When you trust in God and you don't obsess with your past, God will make ways in the desert. He will make a path for you, and and when you follow him, he will take care of you." He will be with you, and, and, and you will not, he will not let you out of his grasp. Uh, when we dwell on our past mistakes, when we live in the past, we become paralyzed and unable to move. We get, as that song says, we get stuck in a moment. And we can't get out of it, you know? So, we're, so Jesus is saying, move on. How do we do this? Release your regrets. Those things that you regret, let those go. They're not going to help you in the present. They're not going to help you in the future. Let your regrets go. Forgive yourself and forgive other people. If God is willing to forgive and forget, if he's willing to set our sins as far away as the east is from the west, we have no business holding on to them ourselves. And we, and we certainly have no business not forgiving someone else from our past, someone that's hurt us. Jesus says forgive 70 times 70, which means forever. Forgive no matter what. Let it go. Don't ever think about time is lost. There is no time lost. God works on eternity. We have a linear timeline. God is in eternity. The things that we, you know, the, the mistakes that we made, they're gone. Don't think about them as, as time lost and start regretting that you didn't do things right. That your opportunity to do things right is now. And finally, bring the lessons from the past into the present. What you learned from the past, bring that with you and just let, let the rest stay back there. All right? Jesus is telling us to shake the dust not look back, keep moving, keep moving forward. When we mess up, when we fail, when we falter, when we're rejected, when we're defeated, when we're lost, when we fail to test, when we've lost a job, we've argued with our spouse, we've lost our temper, we've committed a sin, whatever it is, we don't let it stop us. We take the lesson from it. We move forward. We learn. We get up. We ask forgiveness. We forgive ourselves, and we move on. In closing, I would just encourage all of us this week, let's just take these lessons that Jesus taught to his disciples. Know who you are. Trust God's provision. And don't look back. Take these lessons with you this week as you go to your job, as you interact with other people, as you think about your own life, as you meditate on God's word, as you study, as you read, as you pray. That's a big part of being a Christian. Some of this may seem counterintuitive, but... It's what Jesus commands us to do. Let go of the past and let's move forward.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful once again for the passage uh, that you've given us today and for the deeply important and valuable lessons that you teach us from your word. All of us strive, God. Ultimately, we want to be we want to be pleasing to you. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to follow you. And sometimes, Lord, it's not always clear what we should do, but we we know that we can turn to your word and we know that we can um, learn about who we are in you. And, and Lord, we know that you will provide for us. We know that you will make a way for us. You never give a person a vision without making the provision. We know that you have made a way for us. And we know, Lord, that we are to let go of those things in our past that try to hold us back. And we know, Lord, that you're calling us to move forward. Give us strength. Give us courage to go forward, to love you, to enjoy you, to enjoy one another, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time in the service, we always have some time where uh, you can just stay quietly in your seat and and think about what we've talked about. You can pray quietly if you like. Um, 